thousands of refugees are waiting at the U.S.-Mexico border. This might sound like old news, but these asylum seekers are getting through the border. And what makes them different from the previous waves of migrants is that they are from Ukraine. More than 2,000 Ukrainian refugees have crossed the border at Tijuana into San Diego. President Joe Biden has ordered border agents to process any Ukrainian seeking sanctuary in the United States. He says we will accept up to 100,000 refugees from Ukraine. But why exactly are Ukrainians coming to the U.S. through Mexico from Europe amid the war in their homeland? Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. Ron Hansen's out this week. Today, we're joined by the Republic's immigration issues reporter, Rafael Carranza. Rafael, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So let's go ahead and start with the biggest questions surrounding what we're seeing down at the border right now. Why are so many Ukrainians coming here from Mexico, of all places? Well, it all boils down to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It has been a massive war that has displaced millions of people within the country. And then the United Nations estimates that 4 million people have fled Ukraine, mostly to other parts of Europe. But you also have thousands of them who have relatives leaving the United States and, you know, they want to get to them. So, you know, there's very large Ukrainian-American communities spread out throughout the country. Chicago is one of the biggest ones, Sacramento and California as well. So it's a big pull. And one of the second reasons is perhaps most importantly, is that the U.S. has essentially opened their doors to Ukrainians arriving via Mexico. And so as long as they get to the city of Tijuana, they are guaranteed immediate access to the country. And if they applied, for example, to be resettled as refugees, that process could take months while they file visas and do all these other procedures to get here. So if they get to Tijuana, they're guaranteed to have an appointment with Customs and Border Protection and therefore be admitted into the country on humanitarian grounds. And so this obviously makes Tijuana a very key focal point in all of this, but it's nothing new to the city. They're used to seeing waves of migrants coming in and out. And as the largest land crossing in the world that it shares with San Diego, it's oftentimes kind of the stopping point for many migrants as they try to get to the U.S. So millions of people displaced, yet Biden put the cap at about 100,000. That is a number that some folks say is too low. Others obviously would say that that is too high. How did we arrive at that number? The administration, first of all, has not really given much more details about how they'll manage that or, you know, how they determine who they select to come here and the process for them to do so. And so amid that uncertainty, that just kind of has opened up paths for people to find alternate routes. And I think that the administration has expressed that they would like the bulk of them staying in Europe. But what we saw, for example, with the Afghan evacuees after the fall of Afghanistan, the government also set a 100,000 benchmark. And that number is still ongoing. They haven't reached that point with Afghans yet. But certainly with Ukrainians, it's something else to watch. But again, it's very early stages. And at this point, we're still not sure how many of them have arrived to the U.S. through Mexico. We've all seen the pretty heart-wrenching images coming out of Ukraine of moms, oftentimes with small children, elderly folks. 
leaving Ukraine, walking um, through decimated villages, making their way into Poland or other areas. How are Ukrainians getting to Mexico? Is it just an easy flight or is it a more complicated journey for some of these people? It is definitely a lot more complicated. I think within the first of all, I think anybody has to first get out of Ukraine, which you know can be a big challenge, particularly in a lot of the areas that have seen heavy fighting. Um, and so to get to Tijuana and to Mexico, they have to take several flights. Generally, it's been the case that after they leave uh, Ukraine, they'll go to a neighboring country like Hungary or Poland. And then from there, they'll go to a, a bigger European country like Germany or Spain or France. And, you know, these countries then have connecting flights to Mexico. So if, you know, they don't have a U.S. visa, a tourist visa or something else to get them directly here, their best bet essentially is to fly into Mexico, which doesn't have any uh, visa requirements for them. And if they get to, you know, Mexico City or Cancun, these are cities that have a lot of European connections. They then are able to take a flight from those cities to Tijuana, where they then are able to queue up. And I actually spoke to uh, one of the Ukrainian refugees. Her name is Vladislava Bohashova. I met her at a shelter in Tijuana. She had just gotten there two days before, and she had fled Kiev March 4th with her mom. So it was just days after the Russians began bombarding the city. They crossed first into Poland, then into Germany. Then she took a flight from Germany to Madrid in Spain, and from there to Mexico City, finally arriving in Tijuana about two weeks ago or so, and this is what she had to say. It's very hard because you have to run to your flight and uh, you have a lot of belongings and you don't even know what to do and you're very stressed because uh, you're not going to travel. You're, you're trying to find uh, the country where you can just live mm -hmm. and uh, just not be afraid of uh, waking up in the morning. And you know, she has a sister in Los Angeles. So the day after I spoke to her and met her at the shelter, Customs and Border Protection officials called her number. And so she was processed to San Diego. And, uh, you know, last time I spoke to her, you know, she and her mother are already living in Los Angeles. Were they just sort of waved through with the border at first? You know, it's not that simple. When they first arrived, they were being turned away under Title 42. Now, this is a very crucial policy that's in place now. That essentially shuts down access to all asylum or refuge in the United States through the border crossings. And so the Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention put that in place at the onset of the pandemic. So it's been in place since about March 2020. It remains in effect until May 23rd when it's set to go away. And so in March, U.S. officials received instructions to exempt Ukrainians from Title 42 and admit them on humanitarian grounds. So they're, in other words, they're allowed into the country for about a year. They're able to remain in the country, but they don't have any path to citizenship or to get a visa. That's something that Congress, they would need to do if they want to um, create that pathway. You know, when that happened, when they were first getting exempted, that essentially created this camp outside of the main border crossing in Tijuana, where people were waiting out in the open. And you had volunteers that would take food and water to them. But these are still, you know, very tough conditions. You know, they didn't have access to bathrooms, no privacy. And, you know, you have the line of people waiting to cross every day. And so that situation could have very easily deteriorated, as we have seen in previous occasions, not just in Tijuana, but also in border cities like San Luis, Rio Colorado, across from Yuma or Nogales. And so when volunteers got involved, particularly Ukrainian-American churches in the Western U.S., 
That changed everything because then the response morphed into this large-scale operation. It starts at the airport in Tijuana. You have volunteers that are always greeting them with flags. They have signs in Ukrainian and in uh, Russian. They register them in line, essentially, to be processed into the U.S. And so the volunteers are here for about a week at a time. Many of them are Ukrainian and, you know, they were resettled in the U.S. as refugees in the past. And so one of them that I spoke to, Paul Karchenko, he volunteered his time come with his church, the Slavic Church Emmanuel in Portland. Ten years ago, when I came, I spoke only Ukrainian, right? No, didn't know English. And uh, I was in the same position when you come, you know, in an in a airport, you know, nothing. They talk to you, you just look at them. After they arrive, volunteers transport them then to the large shelter that is operating close to the border crossing, or they're able to take them to hotels throughout the city of Tijuana. And the people, when they arrive, refugees, they can track their place in line on their phones so they can tell when their number is close to being called. And when that's the case, volunteers from these churches will also transport them from their shelter or their hotel to the San Isidro border crossing, which interestingly, Customs and Border Protection opened that just to process Ukrainians after it had been shut down for about two years since the onset of the pandemic and Title 42 restrictions. So talking about these shelters, are they alongside migrants from Latin America? I mean, what, what does that scene look like? They are very much on separate tracks. You have the uh, Ukrainians arriving to Tijuana through the help of these volunteers that are being taken to this shelter. It's a sports complex that the city owns, but they allow them, the volunteers to kind of uh, you know, make this shelter there out of the gym, whatever open space they have. And so the Ukrainians are essentially the only points they see when they get to Tijuana are the airport, the shelter, their hotel, if they choose to stay in a hotel, and then the, the border crossing on the Mexican side. The rest of the asylum seekers or other migrants waiting in Tijuana, they're staying at other migrant shelters or permanent facilities. You also have them staying in you know, more uh, low-income neighborhoods, wherever they can kind of afford to wait for months at a time until they're able to gain access into the asylum system. And are these families? Are they single adults? Are they children? Is it a mix of all of that? There's definitely a, a big mix. And it tends to be a lot of women because, as we've seen in the conflict, a lot of the men are barred from leaving because they're required to stay and, and fight under martial law. But we saw also a large number of men that had fled, usually before the date of the invasion. But also, um, you know, one of the young men that I spoke to told me that he was the only child and his parents were elderly. And so he was able to leave acting as their protector. So he made the journey from Ukraine to Tijuana, and he's planning on going to Chicago. What about the rest of them? And, and how many can we expect to come to Arizona during this sort of time frame while they wait to, to see what their future might look like? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think they're heading all over the country. So you have strong Ukrainian-American communities in cities, like I mentioned, Chicago, Sacramento, for example, where many of the volunteers are coming from. But essentially, you also have families and friends all over the country that are taking in these Ukrainian refugees. And so they're able to travel throughout. And that really makes a big difference because you do have that built-in support system and, you know, someone who speaks the language who can help you adapt to the country in a lot of these communities or if you go with friends or family. So we don't know yet how many people have been admitted into the country. The government has not said that. They haven't updated their statistics yet. 
but I imagine that the numbers for Arizona are very small at this point, just because there's not a big community here compared to a lot of other places. That, however, is likely to change over the coming months when more Ukrainians are admitted as refugees. And so, you know, that's the month-long process that you know, will probably start happening several weeks and months from now. And so Arizona has a big resettlement program, so they'll likely end up here as well, but certainly not in big numbers as in, you know, communities like Sacramento or Chicago. So Mexico obviously plays a huge role in this wave of migrant crossings. How does that compare with previous waves that, that we have seen? I mean, we all sort of remember the caravans from 2018. We have all seen the pictures of, of folks waiting um, at the border in some of these awful conditions that you've talked about. How is Mexico responding to all this? So they're very much participating in all of this. I think it's in their interest to get individuals that arrive in Mexico processed and into the United States as fast as possible because then it's out of their hands. And so what's different here is that you've had the volunteers from these churches in the U.S. that have really taken the lead. So they're the ones that are running the shelter. They're organizing the entire system to get them registered and then to the border crossing. And they're working very actively with nonprofits and both the U.S. and Mexican governments to do that. Whereas in the past with the caravans, it was more of a piecemeal effort where, you know, people did what they could, but there really wasn't anyone sort of taking the lead there. So that coordination, I think, has played a big role. And one of the biggest differences as well is the language, the fact that, you know, Ukrainians arriving here speak, you know, Russian, Ukrainian, which is not a very common language in, in Mexico, certainly not in the U.S. as well. And so these volunteers made, you know, this effort even easier for Mexican officials because then they're able to do that on their own. Um, and, you know, the state still has provided, for example, medical, uh, medical teams, they're providing beds, they're providing other services, toilets, for example. And so the government is very much cooperating, but it is the, the volunteers who have made it what it is now. So let's contrast this a little bit with the thousands of asylum seekers from Latin American countries, Central America. What did you hear from Ukrainian migrants about their experience? And did you hear from Latin American refugees who've sort of been stuck at the border waiting for entry for months, sometimes years? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely a dual reality. And I think beyond the wait times, there are very significant differences between the two populations. And for one, with Ukrainians, you know, we're talking about a full-scale war that has upended, you know, not just the country, but the entire globe. And there's so much uncertainty about what's going to happen in Ukraine and the people living in Ukraine, as well as those who have fled. And I think we've seen a lot of sympathy worldwide for the plight of Ukrainians and everyone kind of fleeing violence there. But there are some, you know, very clear racial dynamics at play here. And even if it's not the intent behind the policies, it certainly is, you know, in, in the optics where you see the U.S. government essentially going out of its way to admit and process white Ukrainian refugees after two years having shut everything down, and then everyone else, mostly black and brown refugees that continue to wait in Tijuana, have no other choice but to continue living in pretty rough, often very precarious conditions in cities like Tijuana and Nogales and along the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the asylum seekers that I spoke to, his name is Carlos Quintanilla, he's from Honduras, has been waiting in Tijuana for over two years now, essentially. And so what he tells me is that, you know, they're also fleeing, you know, very, very violent conflicts that are in some ways comparable to what's happening in Ukraine. 
And here's he saying that he doesn't come from a, a traditional war like Ukraine, but he does come from a gang war. And he says that they will still kill their families, and if they don't leave, they will also kill them, which is you know why they ended up in Tijuana. Horrific dynamics and really difficult circumstances for so many people. What happens next with Ukrainian migrants? And what are their long-term prospects? I mean, you say we have to wait for Congress. I could imagine the same dynamic that is playing out on the ground between these two different sort of categories of migrants. I can't imagine the frustration that so many of them may feel if Congress moves to resolve one group over another, for example. Certainly. And, you know, with Ukrainians, I think that there's just a lot of relief at finally finding a place where they can live and carry on their everyday lives, certainly away from, you know, their homes and, and relatives they may have back in Ukraine. But the arrival of Ukrainians here certainly has kind of set the bar. That's what many of the analysts that I spoke to and a lot of the other migrant advocates who feel that what the U.S. has done for Ukrainians in processing them very efficiently and very quickly is what they need to do for everybody else. And so as word of mouth spreads, particularly within Ukrainian refugees about the ease or you know, the coordination that exists to allow them into the country via Tijuana, it's expected that we're going to see a lot more people continuing to get here over the course of the next few weeks. And as far as asylum seekers and everyone else that's waiting, everyone's kind of holding their breath until May 23rd, which is when Title 42 will go away. And when that happens, it's still very unclear how that's going to play out. The U.S. government hasn't said what their plans will be to start processing people for asylum. Or, for example, out of all the thousands of people who have been waiting for years and months, who will go first? And that's a very unique question that I think we'll see play out over the course of the next few weeks leading up to May 23rd. And so we'll be keeping a close eye on that, too. And one of the dynamics that we've seen emerge from that are sort of a diver divergent views from Arizona's two Democratic U.S. senators, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Sinema, who have been pretty critical of the Biden administration's decision on um, on Title 42. It's having implications politically for not just Kelly, who is up for re-election in 2022, but other congressional Democrats and statewide candidates. What are the political implications of all this? I know there's a, there's a lot probably to unpack, but where do you see this conversation going, particularly in the Republican primaries where a lot of these races are just going to be settled? I think that there's still pretty broad support politically for the plight of Ukrainians and trying to provide as much assistance as we've seen, for example, with the administration providing, you know, millions and millions in weapons to help them defend themselves. And so I think it remains to be seen whether that support will translate into legislative action. What we've seen, for example, with Afghans arriving into the country is that, you know, they also enjoyed broad support because they were working hand in hand with U.S. officials and the U.S. military. But even then, in their case, we still haven't seen any laws that have you know, made any headways in Congress to grant them some sort of legalized status. And so that's also going to be a test coming up for Ukrainians. But when it comes to everyone else and you know, Title 42 and border management policies, that's really where I think we've really seen all the attention just kind of divert and focus to. It's certainly in the ads playing out in TV right now, for example, for the governor's race, for the Senate race here in Arizona. 
around the country too. We've seen it from as far away as Ohio. Politicians were kind of seizing on this narrative of an open border. And, um, you know, Title 42 is the fear that they're kind of stoking to say, you know, this is going to be even worse. Certainly the U.S. government knows they're expecting that there will be more people arriving to the border after this policy is removed. But they've also talked about how they want to follow the science. And if the CDC says it's time to remove that, what we've seen from Democrats, particularly moderate Democrats, is that, you know, they're kind of in this balance between the law and order aspect, but then also the humanitarian and making sure that the people who do have these valid claims to asylum, that their cases are heard. And what we've seen, for example, with Kelly and Cinema is that they feel that the administration is not prepared at the moment, or at least they haven't seen indications that the Biden administration has taken the necessary precautions to keep not just the migrants safe, but also making sure that communities on the U.S. side of the border, like Yuma, like Tucson, like San Diego, are not overwhelmed if more people show up. Sort of as we saw last summer with the transportation issues and the housing, food. And that's, that could definitely be a repeat, you know, what we see that. And as you get more people arriving or waiting to kind of see what will happen, there's just kind of a lack of clarity at this point over what will happen and how that will be managed. The administration has talked about a couple steps that they're trying to do to alleviate that. One of them that I think would be very notable to watch is that they're going to be allowing asylum seekers to adjudicate cases. So to decide whether someone has a valid claim or not directly from the border as opposed to having that individual go before an immigration judge elsewhere in the country. And so they're hoping that that will speed up the process, weeding out claims that they feel are not valid. But there's a lot of concerns from advocates about whether that interferes with a person's ability to kind of get due process and get their cases fully heard. Super interesting. As always, Rafael, thank you so much for sharing your reporting. And listeners, if you want more from Rafael, which I know you do, Go to azcentral.com and click local. Where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me. My account is uh, Rafael Carranza, R-A-F-A-E-L-C-A-R-R-A-N-Z-A. That is it for today, Gecko listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend or two. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winchett. Today's episode was edited by Kaylee Monahan. Also be sure to check out Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and azcentral.com podcast that answers all of your questions about the Valley. From silly to serious, you ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.